Hello everybody and welcome to the greatest games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, of course Jonathan Wilson is here and with us today is Michael Taylor, a historian and author whose book The Interest, How the British Establishment Resisted the Abolition of Slavery was shortlisted for the 2021 Orwell Prize for Political Writing. Michael, pleasure to have you on the pod. Thanks very much for having me on. Today we go back to the summer of 1982 to the World Cup in Spain for the first round match that finished Spain 0, Northern Ireland 1. Michael, why have you chosen this game? Well, as you can probably tell from my accent, I am Northern <laughs> Irish. But um, sadly, there are very few matches from you know my formative years that you might want to talk about. Growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, as a Nor- Northern Irishman, there really wasn't very much to cheer about. Uh, we obviously reached our nadir, I think it was the 2004 Euros qualifying campaign, where we didn't score a goal uh, under Sammy McElroy. Things did pick up a little bit. I mean, we, we beat England at Windsor Park. Uh, David Healy scored a hat-trick to beat Spain. We beat Sweden in the same uh, in the same qualifying campaign. But I think in, in terms of the greatest event in Northern Irish history, uh, footballing history, this is probably the match to talk about. Mm. Yeah, you can't really argue with that one, Jonathan, can you? And and the wonderful backdrop of the 1982 World Cup in Spain. Oh, yeah. I mean, my first World Cup, and you know, as I've said when we, when we did the final of this tournament with Matt Lorenzo, just everything about that tournament informed what I think football should be. Kits should look like that. Crowds <laughs> should sound like that. The TV pictures should look like that. Mm-hmm. It, it was... Yeah. And Northern Irish results should look like this as well. Yeah, well maybe I wouldn't go that far, but... <laughs> Uh, well, but is, yes, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, I thought Michael would agree with me there. <laughs> there, is, there, there is definitely something to be said for uh, teams, underdogs winning uh, in matches of extreme violence is something yeah. that, that we can all get behind. Yeah, it's a very different Spain to what we know now, but we'll come to that, I, I, I'm sure. But um, of course, it wasn't the first time Northern Ireland had qualified for the, for the World Cup. They did reach the World Cup quarterfinals in 1958, where they were beaten 4-0 by France. But between 58 and 82, they didn't really come close, uh, did they, Michael, for qualifying no, so for the, the World Cup? The, the, the team in 58, I think, was pretty unarguably good. Mm. Um, there's Harry Gregg in that, Stanley Blanchflower was the captain, Billy Bingham, who was then the manager in 82, and I'm sure Jonathan can riff about what a wonderful Sunderland legend he was. <laughs> yep. um, Jimmy McElroy won the league with Burnley, Alf McMichael as well, though Jonathan will probably not want to talk about his time at Newcastle quite so much. Uh, and Peter McParland, like the Villa legend, who scored twice against Czechoslovakia in the playoff to get out of the groups in that World Cup, uh, and twice against West Germany in a draw. Um, they did lose 4-0 in the end to Just Montaigne's France, but I think... Getting yep. to the quarterfinals for your country of <laughs> 1.5 million people at the time, yeah. which is the, the least populous country ever to qualify for the World Cup. And was until 2006, I think, Trinidad. That's and right. Took it yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, th- that was a real achievement. But between 58 and 82, there weren't really too many near misses, although Northern Ireland probably should have qualified for the 66 World Cup. But uh, Albania uh, leveled uh, in the second half uh, in Tirana. We had to win that match to go through, uh, and we drew, so we didn't. Uh, but yeah, for you know, for this reason, um, George Best never plays uh, in in a major championship. Um, there was some consideration of picking him for the '82 World Cup, but in the end, uh, that, that didn't happen. Mm. Uh, you've mentioned Billy Bingham, so let's let's 
go to him. He was the man in charge, of course, of Northern Ireland in, in the 82 World Cup. He'd previously managed uh, Northern Ireland in the late 60s uh, and early 70s. Uh, also managed Greece in the early 70s as well. But he was given the Northern Ireland job a second time in 1980. And, Michael, things were changing uh, for Northern Ireland on the pitch in terms of some of the players they had, you know, recognisable names in there. They won the British Home Championship that year in 1980. So there must have been uh, a, a, a good mood around uh, football in you know in terms of playing and so on i mean there was i don't think bingham lost any of his first eight or nine matches in his second term in charge hmm. um but he, he himself wasn't coming off a particularly golden spell of management i think his last job before this was with mansfield town in the old third or fourth division hmm. um and then uh there was there was a club job in greece before that um but with small countries it's really hard to say that there's a systemic problem or a systemic, you know, something good going on systemically. It's simply whether or not you just have enough players, like a critical threshold of decent players who are the same age arriving at the same time. Um, and Northern Ireland in 80, between 80 and 82, maybe even until 86, have got enough players who are either just hanging on to the peak of their powers or just coming into them. Um, so in, 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 the, in the squad that goes through the qualification process, now, Pat Jennings is still in Nets. He's 36, 37 at the time. He's at Arsenal. Um, and he was alongside Best, probably one of the two indisputably world-class players that Northern Ireland had uh, in that generation. Um, there are people like Sammy McElroy just finished quite a lengthy spell at Man United. Uh, the two nickel, uh, two nickels had both played in the first division. Martin O'Neill was winning two European Cups with Nottingham Forest. Um, Jerry Armstrong, who goes on to become a legend of Northern Irish and then eventually what well, the anti-hero of Spanish football. Um, was winning the the league with Watford in 1982, um, had and had spent five years at Spurs. So there were. It, it's tempting to describe the Northern Irish squad as a team of journeymen or people who weren't quite good enough. But at various stages in their career, they had been, and they had been serious first division players. Yeah, it was a decent squad, Jonathan. No doubt about that. You know, as you say, the household names and legends of the game. Yeah, Norman Whiteside just emerging. I mean, he you know he was uh, 17 about seven weeks, I think, uh, in in this particular game. Um, yeah, Bingham hadn't seen him play for Man United. He'd seen him play in the reserves a couple of times because Whiteside had only played two matches, seen yeah. matches for United, um, but went with him. It was the kind of thing that Bingham, he did it again in 86 with David Campbell, just picked somebody uh, on potential as much mm. as reputation. And I, I mean, I guess Northern Ireland as well, the, the, the sort of the decade leading up to this, they'd actually, if you, if you look at the players, they, they'd been pretty good. They'd had a, 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 a serious core of first division players uh, but of course, there was so much going on in the background with Northern Ireland. And we, we did the podcast with Michael Walker talking about the the exile from Belfast, having to play games you know, at, at Hillsborough, at, uh, at Boothbury Park, uh, Craven Cottage, having to sort of you know, be itinerant around England because it was it was seen as unsafe to play in Belfast. So obviously, when your home games are not at home, that makes everything that much harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe that generation could have done what this generation did and just didn't. I mean, I guess the World Cup was, was smaller, which made it harder to qualify for, but but also had that, that huge issue of, of not being able to play at Windsor Park un, until that game against Yugoslavia we did with Michael. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is it's playing at Windsor Park, which is, a you know, if, of, of the 70s and 80s and even longer, you know, it is a cold Tuesday night away at Stoke. Um, it's an <laughs> inhospitable, pretty intimidating grind to go to. Um, and Northern, I think they're unbeaten in qualifying for the 82 World Cup at Windsor Park. Um, their best display, they beat Sweden 3-0. Um, they grab a 1-0 victory over Portugal, hold Scotland to a draw. Uh, and then in the last match, uh, they need to win. They need to beat Israel 1-0. Jerry Armstrong scores. Um, so 
that you know that's key to them getting through. It's quite it's a tough group. I mean, they're the fourth seed yeah. in the group of five. Scotland probably one of the better Scottish teams, or you know that generation probably the best Scottish team ever. Um, Sweden and Portugal, you know, fairly large European countries with strong footballing traditions. Um, and, and then e- even Israel, you know, effectively help Northern Ireland because I think they beat Portugal uh, in, in Tel Aviv, uh, which effectively knocks Portugal out. Mm. Yeah, and uh, you know, match with the. the... You know, impressive uh, qualification, which they weren't, as you say, fancied to go through from that group. And then with the 1984 was the first World Cup to feature 24 teams, and it all kind of worked out quite nicely. Um, and so, what was the getting to the World Cup for for Northern Ireland? Uh, you know, as Jonathan said, you know, in the background of Northern Ireland, it, the, the the picture wasn't too rosy. Um, it must have been quite an achievement, and and brought a bit of sort of fever pitch around the country for the tournament. I mean, Northern Ireland in the late 1970s and early 80s was mm-hmm. still, it was maybe not quite the height of the troubles, but not far off it. Yeah. I mean, there was, in 78, there was the bombing at the Le Mans Hotel. I mean, 79 was the winter of discontent generally in the UK, but uh, there was also the murder of Mountbatten and the war in Point Ambush. These are you know, fairly seminal, sad moments in the history mm-hmm. of the troubles. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time you get into the early 80s, unemployment is horrendous, especially in Northern Ireland. The DeLorean factory is about to close and uh, a mire of scandal. Uh, and 81 is the summer of the hunger strikes. Um, and it's quite important. I mean, it's not to say that the success of the football team was a panacea that would solve mm-hmm. Northern Ireland's sure. social and political ills. It, it wasn't, and it didn't, and it would be you know, ridiculous to suggest otherwise. But what was really important, I think, is that four of the really key members of this team were Catholics. Um, and even for, you know, the, Pat Jennings, Martin O'Neill, Mal Donachy and Jerry Armstrong. Um, and even if playing for Northern Ireland or recognising Northern Ireland was in some uh, parts of the country politically sensitive, uh, this was still, it was a cross-community team that at least whenever Northern Ireland were playing um, could engender some sense of fraternity and community. And how did Bingham manage this? Was Was he... A particularly for those who don't know him, was he a particularly sort of big character that you know in the press and and with his team, or what was his style of management and his persona around the time? Well, I think he was regarded as quite a stern, hard man who was incredibly competitive and placed um, significant emphasis on the physical aspects of football. Uh, so whenever he was growing up as a forward in Belfast, he was quite a, a lean, spindly figure. Uh, so he ended up doing a weight regime with a guy called Buster McFarlane. He ends up being. Mary Peters' personal trainer whenever she wins a gold medal at the 72 Olympics. Um, and this kind of physical rigor he brings to the Northern Irish team. And there's, there's a summer camp in 82 uh, before the World Cup. Now, mm-hmm. England and Scotland have both gone to America to acclimatize to the hot climate. Northern Ireland are in Brighton uh, for 10 days. Uh, <laughs> it's slightly warmer than Belfast, isn't it? Slightly warmer than Belfast. And look, yeah. I think it was it, luckily very hot during that fortnight. <laughs> Um, but one, one, of, one of Bingham's um, sort of his training methods was, uh, I think he went to the University of Sussex and said, right, who's your best long distance runner? And said, right, boys, you're just going to chase him around for 10 days. Um, because he, I, I, I think he knew, he, he knew quite sensibly that if Northern Ireland were going to have a chance of getting out of the group, that kind of high energy pressing, uh, you know, constant defending in soaring temperatures, that was going to be the only way to do it. And you mentioned that you touched on his time at Sunderland. Uh, so he played under Alan Brown at Sunderland. Alan Brown, although he, he ends up leading someone to relegation twice, uh, which I think from a modern perspective gives a slightly false impression. He was incredibly innovative, innovative and also incredibly tough. 
So one of the things Alan Brown had done to get players fit was to have them build a new training centre, literally have the players building the walls, carrying the bricks, mixing the cement. Because you know, his logic was physical work is, is good training. It's, it's you know, all work is good work. And if we do it, we don't have to pay anybody else to do it. So I, I'm not sure if Bingham would have been there when the training centre was built, but he certainly worked under Brown, who had these ideas of, of training that were pretty brutal. I mean, he also famously, um, when the training ground uh, was, at Sunderland was frozen, he took the players down to Seaburn Beach and they just played on the beach. And then he made them run into the sea when it's sort of <laughs> sub-zero. Um, and then they, they would chase back to Rugger Park where there were two baths. So, you know, the first people back got the hot bath. And, you know, obviously that's, that's pretty stimulating. That's going to be you know, a big incentive to, to win that race back. Mm. Well, what did, what did some of the players make of his, um, his uh, management style or, or sort of methods, if you like? Um, because you say, you know, Martin O'Neill had won a couple of European Cups by this point. Uh, Pat Jennings, a legend of the game and so on. Did, did this provide some uh, squad harmony or, uh, you know, how, how did the players take to this? I, I, I think that once you were in with him, once, you know, once you were one of his players, and Lolland didn't change the starting lineup in the World Cup, and I, no. very, very rarely during qualification either, um, then he was intensely loyal to that player. Um, and obviously he'd, he'd, been, he'd been around Northern Ireland football for ages, so it, it would have been impossible for any of these players not to know who he was or what his reputation was. Um, and I, I, well, it worked, I think, because he gelled this team together fantastically well. So if if you yeah absolutely if you but then does it make his decision to take Whiteside? I mean I know you cited another young player that he took. Were people surprised at that? Seventeen year old lad, you know he was the youngest player to appear in a World Cup finals when he made his full debut against yeah, Yugoslavia. Yeah. Was that seen as a huge gamble, or were were people thinking, oh hang on a minute, we've got a gem here? Uh, well, I th- I think they knew they had a gem in their hands. The question was uh, in selecting: was it going to be Whiteside or was it going to be George Best? Mm-hmm. Uh, and George Best is 35 or 36 at the time. Um, in a later interview, he claims that he was incredibly fit at the time and that he was playing three hours of racket sports a day and that the only problem was he was playing for a crap team uh, in America. He was playing for San Jose Earthquakes at the time and that the, the couple of times that Bingham saw him play, San Jose just got destroyed. Um, so he, he thought he was out of nick. Um, I'm not sure how much of that is true because, um, <laughs> you know, Best at this stage, uh, he tried to sign terms with Bolton, I think, in 1981, and it didn't come to fruition. Uh, and the only games he ended up playing uh, in 1983 were, were, were guest appearances in the Hong Kong First Division. Um, so whether or not he could have fitted into this team, you know, was best somebody who was going to do endless tracking back and defending and all of this fitness work? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. And I think also yeah. just best brings a circus with him. Just through no fault of his own. Yeah, best will always be the story, and that can be a huge distraction. And no yeah. fault of his own. <laughs> well, okay. Well, what I mean by that is, even if he had knuckled down, absolutely followed every tactical instruction he was given, there would still be this enormous circus there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, okay. Clearly, his activities over the previous twenty years had contributed to that. Uh, whereas Whiteside, I mean, you know, physically hugely imposing teenager, who clearly was going to do what he was told and was going to follow instructions and, and wasn't going to bring any of that nonsense with him. Yeah, and gets, not only makes his debut against Yugoslavia, but gets booked for, I think, hitting the Yugoslavian centre-half on day. Yeah. Um, so he was definitely not afraid of, of that kind of play. <laughs> definitely not. All right, chaps, let's have a quick break and then we'll talk about the football itself. Back in a moment, everybody. 
Welcome back to the greatest games on the blizzard. So then, uh, gentlemen, to Spain, 1982. Um, Jerry Armstrong uh, said uh, years after the events that uh, that unfolded in, in Spain that the plan uh, was apparently to get a draw with Yugoslavia, beat Honduras, and then draw with Spain. And that would be enough to go through. And their opening match, of course, was against Yugoslavia, a country with, with a big football uh, tradition. Obviously, we, we, we know what subsequently happened there. Um, but nil-nil, not a bad start, Michael, for, for Northern Ireland. An incredibly good start, I yeah. think. Um, a strong team now arguably had done an awful lot better and over the last you know 16 to 20 years of international football than Spain had done. So nil-nil draw against Yugoslavia in the first match not only goes to plan but is in itself actually a really respectable result. So mm. probably since 64 whenever Spain won the European Championship Yugoslavia had the much more impressive record in international football. Um, there were a couple of semi-finals in the World Cup, um, a couple of beaten finalists on a couple of occasions in the Euros. Um, and I think perhaps the strength of Yugoslavian football in the 60s and 70s is forgotten because of the subsequent dissolution of the country. Um, but, you know, really, nil-nil, Northern Ireland, you know, I would take that any day of the week. Mm, yeah, so a, a good start, white sides up and running uh, in the side. And uh, Spain themselves, they, they had drawn one all against Honduras, which would have been a disappointing result for them. They obviously then beat Yugoslavia 2-1. Um, and in Spain, sorry, in, in Northern Ireland's second game, they drew one all with Honduras, and yeah. this is the spanner in the works. That, that the plan hadn't been executed, Michael. So yeah, on the face of it, that's a disappointing result, and it's especially disappointing mm. because Armstrong had scored in the first half, and then Honduras equalised. Um, but Honduras had won the Concacaf qualification championship. They'd knocked out Mexico. Uh, they'd gone unbeaten through that tournament, although it was held in Honduras. So God knows what was actually going on. Um, but this, they, they're not perhaps the minnows that you would immediately think. They seem to have been an incredibly competent team that were probably playing in a very similar way to Northern Ireland. I don't know because I've never seen video footage of that match. Um, yeah, well, yes. I think there was sort of a general sense in this tournament that, that the minnows were playing much better than people anticipated. I mean, Algeria, obviously, yeah. I, mean, I think it was actually the same day as this game, wasn't it? The, the disgrace in Hihon when you know, Austria and West Germany collude in the, the 1-0 win for West Germany, which takes both through Algeria's expense. But Algeria had beaten West Germany. Honduras were, were, were playing better than people had expected. Uh, Cameroon were doing very well in, in Italy's group. And, and you know, they end up only going out on, on goals scored. So I, I think, I mean, partly because the World Cup expanded from 16 teams to 24, there was this scrutiny of the smaller nations of do they mount their place? And pretty quickly, okay, El Salvador yeah, got battered 10 10 1 to Hungary. But by and large, it was a resounding yes. You know, the football has grown and the likes of Honduras absolutely merit their place. Although I do get the sense of Honduras, they haven't really changed in 40 years. They're just a horrible, <laughs> brutal, nasty yeah. defensive team. Good You're fine. Get good results. But you would hate to watch them and you hate to, to play against them. Yeah, yeah I, I, I didn't enjoy... I haven't enjoyed watching them since. Yeah. <laughs> and if anybody has enjoyed watching Honduras play, do, uh, do get in touch with Michael on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed. Well, uh, to set the scene then, uh, going into this final game for, for Northern Ireland in the group, um, uh, Yugoslavia, obviously, they, they'd beaten Honduras in their final group, which was played 24 hours before Spain versus Northern Ireland, which uh, be due to that Germany and Austria business that you mentioned, Jonathan, that the rules were rightly changed. It seems crazy that that was the case. Well, a, a basic belief in people's honesty. I mean... 
Uh, very foolish. <laughs> uh, yeah, and 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 FIFA were the ones who were who were uh, a shock and uh, Yeah, after it would have who would it takes one to know one, etc. Um, so a win or a draw would have seen Spain top the group. Um, a, a Spain win or a goalless draw would have meant Yugoslavia going through at Northern Ireland's expense. A one or draw would have seen Yugoslavia and Northern Ireland drawing um, drawing lots between uh, to see who would qualify uh, for the next phase with Spain, which. If I may, Michael, just for a brief moment, I'm sort of quite regretful that that didn't happen because I just I just would have been quite incredible to see that. But for Northern Ireland's, uh, uh, you know, for Northern Ireland, I'm very glad that they won one nil. So a two all draw or a, or a Northern Ireland winner would have been enough to go through uh, for for Bingham's boys. So and if, and if Northern Ireland won two nil, Spain were out. Yeah, yes, yeah, important to to say that as well. So. The scene was set really, you know, playing the percentages and the averages and all for, for Spain to kind of win top the group and for Northern Ireland to, to gallantly go home that evening uh, in Valencia. Uh, yeah, so um, Northern Ireland have gone from Saragossa to Valencia. Um, mm. Spain have played all of their group matches at Mestalla, uh, or it was the Luis Casanova Stadium at the time. Um, mm. So it really is, you know, it, it's a home grind. And... <laughs> It's probably you, you can't underestimate the amount of pressure that's on Spain, actually, um, because you know, it, the recent Spanish history had been incredibly complicated. I know Franco had only died in '75. Um, um, you know, this ETA was at its probably you know, at the, the bloodiest stage of its campaign in the late '70s and the early '80s. Uh, there had been a, an attempted coup d'état the previous year, much of which had happened in Valencia. Um, so I think this World Cup was a real opportunity in the same way that Seoul was later in the decade. Um, an opportunity for Spain to present itself uh, as a functioning, competent country in the international stage. Um, there was also intense footballing pressure because the Spain of 1982 is not, or was not, the powerhouse that we now think of it. Um, it was, there hadn't been a Spanish winner of the European Cup since 66, I think, that was the last time Real Madrid. Um, Sociedad uh, had been champions for the two previous years. Um, so. Again, there's a there's an expectation and a demand, I think, on on the behalf of the Spanish public, you know, to get this job done, to give a, a good showing and go as far as possible with home advantage. And there's yeah. also the style of Spanish football, which which mm. becomes very apparent, is very different to how we think of Spanish football now. You know, we think of Spanish football now as being very possession heavy, all about short passes. You know, and, and when it goes wrong for them now, it tends to be because of a lack of incisiveness. That you know they'll dominate a game, but won't be able to 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 to, to finish the opponent off. Whereas this was still the age of La Furia Roja, the you know, the the Red Fury, and that was um, that that nickname came from 1920 Olympics, uh, with a game uh, when Spain had beaten I think the Netherlands in Antwerp, um, and as a Dutch journalist compared the, the you know the the furious style of a of a, of a, of a, of a with which Spain played. To the the sack of Antwerp by Spanish troops in you know, 16th, what the, century. 16th, 16th century, yeah, um, and, and so you know La Furia Roca is born, and this is something that Franco is very keen. Although it's in a sense a Basque idea, he's very keen to pursue this because he likes this idea of it's about manliness and about toughness, and I, you wouldn't be doubting manliness or toughness of this this Spain side no, in, it, in this game. It was it was yeah. absolutely brutal. Um, the, the first half. Um, just appears to have been a bit of a fight, uh, but a fight being refereed by somebody with um, a rather obvious, well, I, I, obviously I'm going to say this from a certain perspective, but um, incredible bias. There was a Paraguayan referee. Can we can um, we check Hector Ortiz is dead before we libel him? Um, 
no, and you're a lawyer. Like, you, 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 you are literally a lawyer. Is this allowed? Yeah. Uh, um, well, I, I, I've seen people who played in the match say this on TV, so I think it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, uh, there's a Paraguayan referee and uh, I think Peruvian touch judges. And some, some of the shoulder checks, some of it's like, w w this was this was war. It was really brutal. So David McCreary, who was not a shrinking violet, is absolutely flattened at one stage. Uh, that is a horrendous foul. It, yeah. it's, it's almost equivalent to Schumacher. It's just it's the shoulder, not the hip. Yeah. yeah. But it's just, an absolute shocker. Sammy McElroy almost loses a leg and whenever he retaliates slightly, he gets booked. Um, I think Billy Hamilton again. Oh, sorry, hang on. Retaliate slightly. He stamped on the guy. I mean, yes, yes, yes. Okay. I, I, I'm it was a bad foul on him, but he does stamp <laughs> and he could easily have been sent off for that. Uh, yes, uh, yes. I accept that. On oh, uh, um, Sarah, uh, I think it was, wasn't it? I, I have just checked. He is still alive, but he only, I believe he only uh, refereed one game at World Cups. Uh, my sort of 10 second search has said. So he, maybe FIFA thought, uh, yeah, that was a bit poor, uh, that refereeing performance. Uh, and, and, and this was it. This was it. This was his one and only game. Yeah. What a legacy. Uh, um, <laughs> oh dear. Um, but yeah, it was it was really was quite brutal as you say and it's a strange one because you you would think that Spain, you know, the, the, the hosts there, you know, obviously there's a lot of pressure on them and so on, but you would think Jonathan that, that they would I don't know, not behave like that and kind of I mean, I suppose they did well, take no, the game to this, this was this was Spanish football at the time. I mean, um this was just moving into the great era of athletic of Bilbao, mm. and Jose Camacho was was a key figure in that, a key figure in this game. And football in Bilbao was all about physicality and toughness. This very sort of Basque idea of, of mm. manliness. There's the um, uh, there's a game between is it the Super Cup later this year when Villa play Barcelona, and that's an astonishingly brutal game. It's it's and you think of that Villa team. It's a pretty tough team, and they're sort of shocked by just how brutal Barcelona are. Even mm -hmm. two years later, when Barcelona play uh, United, Manchester United in the in the Cup Winners' Cup, you know the, the 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 great game at Old Trafford when when Manchester United overcome a two goal deficit and win win three nil, uh, which people say, and you're looking at the footage of it, you can see why. People say it's the greatest ever atmosphere at Old Trafford, but you look at some of the tackles that fly in that game. Spanish football was a very very tough mm -hmm. game. I and mean, Jimmy Hill, Jimmy Hill's commentary in this game is astonishing. Um, it, it's I don't think he get away with saying those things these days. <laughs> so, so there he goes. Well, oh, the Spanish people are you know they're so warm and friendly in the hotels, but they're really not on the pitch. <laughs> I think that's that's not too bad, is it? Well, yeah, but but Jimmy it, Hill. There's many worse things than that. It was Jimmy. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, you've got it. Your Latins. Uh, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, Jimmy Hill in the eighties. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. It's a point taken. Uh, but yeah, but in among all the fighting on the brutal challenges, there was a game of football trying to be played out. And at halftime, it's nil-nil. And uh, so, so far, so good, I suppose, for, for Northern Ireland. But a nil-nil draw wouldn't have been enough, Michael. No, no, we need a goal. And despite, you'd think given how brutal the Spanish were being, that they might have been the team under pressure defending but no you know they, they still had all the ball it was it was no longer defending most of the time um but in the second half in 47 48 minutes uh jerry armstrong picks up the ball uh, maybe 20 yards inside his own half um so he begins to run makes 40 50 yards pretty much unchallenged you know surprising in the context of this game that there isn't a siding hack 
uh, from a retreating midfielder. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, how he wasn't taken down, I don't know. But it, it's, it's, it's the point you were making about the, the long-distance running and the need to press. It's actually a very modern goal in that it comes from pressing. Uh, Spain get themselves under a bit of pressure because of a couple of half challenges. And then he's the, 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 you know, the pass out to the left wing is not quite strong enough. Armstrong can nip in. And because of the turnover, there is a bit of space for him to accelerate into. And so it, 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 is, it is that sort of, uh, it's not a high press because it's happening sort of, as you say, 20 yards inside the yeah. northern half. But it is from pressing that the, the, the turnover comes. Mm. It is. So, so Armstrong then carries it almost up to the, almost up to the Spanish penalty area. It gives it out um, to, to the right wing. Uh, where Billy Hamilton uh, is charged, is marauding down the right. Um, he, he, he's, you know, massive man. He's scored a couple of important goals in the qualification, playing for Burnley at the time. Uh, and he, he's like, he, he says, he just, I'm just going to whip into a difficult area, um, which he does. But then Luis Arcanado, who I think on commentary is described as being one of the better goalkeepers in Europe or the world at the time, um, playing for Sociedad at the time, so he's won the Spanish League two years in a row, um, just drops the ball, makes a, an absolute hash of it. Mm. Um, to his credit, he does rebound pretty quickly, um, but the ball lands effectively on a plate for Armstrong, round about the penalty spot. Uh, and he does, he does it even, even then. He does incredibly well. He you know, keeps his balance, keeps the shot down through uh, Arcanado's legs, and it's one 0 yeah, I, f- I find Hamilton's, uh, the way he goes past the defender, quite interesting because he gives him quite a wide berth. And I understand yeah. that, I thought to myself, oh, is that because he was quite pacey and, and so on? Obviously, he didn't lack pace. And then watching the, the fouls before, <laughs> and I thought, he must have thought, I'm going to really have to go wide of him, otherwise he's he's going to take me out. But but you're right, it was it was a good finish from Armstrong. And he, he said, didn't he, that uh, there was just bodies in the way of him. So to kind of keep it low. I mean, it was convenient. Obviously, it goes kind of through the goalkeeper's legs. Because otherwise, you'd have to place it maybe in the corner. But when he smacks it in and turns around to celebrate, it's a hell of a moment. And it's a real sucker punch, Jonathan, for, for Spain, who, uh, you know, obviously fans of a, of a punch themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, say it goes between the keeper's legs. I mean, it does go between the keeper's legs. But it goes between his legs because he's just sprung to his feet. Yeah. It, it, yep. it sort of, it goes, almost goes under him because he's just bounced up. Uh, there's two retreating defenders who don't you know, can't quite converge in time. I mean, Arcanada, uh, I, I, Arcanada was one of those, um, maybe even the very first foreign player who made an impression on me. That I, I really loved that the, the the I don't know if it's actually if it's, if it's this tournament or or Euro '84 when he has the the goalkeeping top. Yeah, it's an Adidas top with the navy sleeves and the the, the paler blue body. Uh, in the year '84, he he's brilliant during the tournament, makes a couple of outstanding saves, and then he makes a terrible mistake to concede. Yeah, let's plop an three kick, squirm under his body in the final. Mm-hmm. So I, I think his reputation was of a brilliant goalkeeper who had a mistake in him, and yeah, th- this this was a mistake. But yeah, there's that that great moment when Armstrong clearly realizes it's in fractionally before everybody else on the ground mm-hmm. realizes it's in, mm-hmm. and he you know he, he stands there, uh, his sort of arms out. Yeah, turns around, arms aloft. Um, and it's 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 I, th- I think it's relief as much as you know, there's just a catharsis. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is what we needed. Now we know what we can do for the rest of the match. And yeah, the extraordinary thing about Armstrong, and I didn't know this till last night. I was uh, I was I was in the pub with some people. Michael knows, and um, <laughs> uh, I was saying that I was, I was doing this podcast today with you, and uh, a, lad, a lad I play cricket with, Gordon, goes, oh, "I was at school in Brighton in the late eighties, and I was walking down the corridor one day, and I thought." That bloke looks a lot like Jerry Armstrong. 
And I thought, I think it is Jerry Armstrong. He goes up to him and goes, are you Jerry Armstrong? And he goes, yes. And he goes, what, what are you doing in my school corridor? And he goes, <laughs> I'm the caretaker. And he goes, why? Why? And Jerry Armstrong goes, well, it's a good solid living being a school caretaker. So, so he, yeah, he, he, when he finished playing, he, he, before he became you know, mm. the, 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 the regular commentator on Spanish football on TV, yeah. He he become, becomes a school caretaker, which I, I, I mean, a it's a sort of reflection of what a different age the eighties were. The footballers yeah. didn't earn that much, but also it's a reflection of he wasn't a star mm. even at the time. He was playing for Watford, um, you know, during this you know, uh, well, they, yeah, they, this they just, season. They just come up from the second division that summer. Yeah, Graham Taylor's Watford. The, the, the you know the side that ends up finishing second in their first season, you know, in the in the top flight. Um, but yeah, he's it's, it's, he's a very uh, you know he yeah you know, he's not a star. He's a very ordinary bloke, uh, and that of course makes it all the all the greater that he yeah you know, he's the man who who scores probably the most important goal in Northern Ireland's history. Yeah, and uh, just, just and just to rub it into the the fans at the Mestaya, I think whenever he signs from Mallorca, one of his first games is at the Mestaya, and he scores again. <laughs> <laughs> Same celebration, I do hope. I so. hope so. Yeah. Yeah, um, in one nil Northern Ireland, and then thirteen minutes later, the referee does send somebody off. Uh, he booked a few players in the first half, but Mal Donny is is sent off. It was this harsh, Michael. This was a, this was a, this was a total <laughs> farce. This was ridiculous. So by, by this stage, it, it is just a total scene. So Northern Ireland are playing, you know, ten men behind the ball, almost all of them in the penalty box. There's a free yeah, kick yeah. lofted in from the left. It's headed away. Comes out to the edge of it. Um, Miguel Alonso, so Zabi's dad, uh, has a you know fires one in. Maldonado closes him down. The ball sort of scoots off towards the towards the right wing. Um, Donaghy and Camacho, uh, yeah. I think, uh, go after it. Uh, neither of them gets it in time. There's like these sort of bump shoulders and um, Camacho's yeah, momentum. Oh, no, Camacho's momentum then like carries him into the to, to the fence. He just he stops. All right, he turns around, sort of squares up to Donaghy, just. Oh, it just places a hand on his chest and like pushes him away. Yeah. Uh, but that was enough. Yeah, very naughty, the old hand in the chest in 1982. <laughs> in notorious sending off. Camacho doesn't make anything of it. No, he doesn't, no. Well, um, it's not that Camacho suddenly flings himself down, but it is right next to um, Enrique Lubo uh, Reveredo, the uh, Peruvian linesman. And it's, yeah, he flags. It's, it's his, his decision. Yeah, uh, and and Ortiz is is only too keen to yeah. to get mark his only World Cup game with a with a red card. <laughs> it, 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 indeed, and I think the the comment the commentary line at the time as well. The linesman just made uh, the referee's mind up for him. Yeah, but the thing is that you're the the one you mentioned earlier. Who was it that, that kicked the player in, in retaliation? Oh, so, sorry, sorry, Matt McAvoy on Sarah. Yeah, yeah, that. Should have been probably a sending off. To be fair, so maybe he had that in mind. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, know. he had plenty of opportunities. True. Like, of, of all the things that happened in that game, you listed them in order of most red card worthy. Yeah. This is down Way at number down. fifty or something. It's nowhere near the top. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Martin O'Neill later does say that just by this stage, um, Northern Ireland were getting nothing, and he did think. And and you know, it's not a case of Sarah because obviously Northern Ireland win the match, but he, they did genuinely feel that the referee was giving the Spanish every possible opportunity to win this match. Yeah. Well, uh, it was they were down to 10 men and uh, instead of, you know, sort of 
11 men behind the ball they had to have 10 men behind the ball and uh, but they held out though didn't they? i mean to, again looking at the highlights and some there didn't seem to be too many spanish chances michael no i i, th- I think there's there's maybe one chance with three or four minutes to go where pat jennings is a little bit uncertain but other than that it and it's it's nerve-wracking it's exhausting sure. but it it's as comfortable yeah, as comfortable. withstanding a siege can be yeah, it's all that sort of warm weather training in Brighton probably played <laughs> off, Jonathan. But uh, yeah, it was it, it, they, they played it out very, very well for an incredible victory. Yeah, I mean, there's that there's that one chance with uh, I think it's about nine minutes to go where there's a, a cross comes in, uh, Queenie can't quite get there, and then Sarah messes up his shot at the back post, and he probably should do better. But it, it doesn't it doesn't actually result in a proper shot. It's just mm. it's a dangerous cross that we should do better with. And then yeah, there's the incident Michael talks about where I think I think it's just a long ball from Alonso, isn't it? And he just bounces up a bit strangely. And Jennings has to sort of backpedal and, and sort of palm it away. Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of those where it shouldn't be a chance, but I can imagine in the moment, you know, if you're in the stadium and watching on telly, you'd be absolutely oh, shitting yeah. yourself. As you, I mean, yeah, Pat Jennings looking uncertain is yeah. such a rare thing that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that that's going gonna yeah. to cause panic. They they did yeah. defend they did they defend very well and I think Spain were just a little bit um, well I mean you saw throughout the tournament because you know they 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 go through into that group with with England and West Germany uh, lost to West Germany drew on them against England but they didn't they just didn't have any creativity their their, their entire mode of attack was just l- mm-hmm. lump it into the box and of course yeah players used to playing the British game are entirely mm-hmm. happy to to deal with crosses. Yeah, but I mean, Northern Ireland obviously needed to hold out to to go through without having to draw lots and and but it, I mean it would have only been slightly better if I may say if they'd have got that second one and knocked and knocked Spain out of course. Yeah. but I think down to ten men that was probably very unlikely. No, it was it was it was a great win there, and there are two or three great little anecdotes from after the game. No, and of course I'm sure these have grown in the telling over the years. But the first one is I think um, Jerry Armstrong and Tommy Cassidy from Burnley had come on uh, in the second half for taken away for the drugs test. Um, and it takes them 90 minutes to give a sample because they're so dehydrated. So um, the Spanish doctors, I mean, you know, Spanish policemen with guns are feeding them beer and wine. So come on, lads, we just need a sample. Uh, so they, they get pissed before they can give a sample. Um, so they, yeah, so <laughs> and and Jerry Armstrong apparently singing Danny Boy as he yeah, thinks more yeah, yeah. and more. <laughs> <laughs> Superb. Well, and and they, so uh, they, they get then, you know, they get back to the hotel um, it, it, in Valencia. Um, and there are all of these messages from across Northern Ireland. And so two in particular that jump out. And one is from Charles Hockey, who's the Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland at the time, and the other is from Ayn Paisley. Um, so there is, you know, as much as we said earlier, that it's just a, you know, if there's this brief moment of uh, cross-community fraternity, um, then that was, that was certainly worth everything else in the match. Um, but the best one is actually whenever they get to Madrid. Um, so the second group stage is going to be held in Madrid and um, they crossed the Yugoslavians coming down the stairs because the Yugoslavians were so convinced that Spain were going to beat Northern Ireland, they moved into the hotel. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> were, were any words exchanged or was it just glances? I, 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 I think hopefully just a smug nod as uh, we went out <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, hope they've, uh, I hope they've got the right TV channel in the hotel, boys. Uh, because, yeah, in that second group stage, they, they drew two all with Austria and then lost 4-1 to France. Because France knocked them out 4-0 in 1958. So it was France again who, who knocked them out. And, but yeah, and they, it, they, it was a very yeah. good French team. And I, I think yeah. you know, we felt slightly aggrieved because Martin O'Neill scores really quite a nice goal uh, after about eight or nine minutes uh, that is wrongly ruled out for offside. And that's not just, you know, 
VAR definitely would have given it a call because he's onside by, by, by a yard. And, but I think against that kind of team where they are of just such superior quality, chasing the game was never going to be possible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they would appear at the World Cup in 1986 too. You know, Bingham uh, led them to that one, which was which was quite impressive. So, they, you know, considering how long it took to, to get to another major championship, you know, the, the, the early mid-80s wasn't too bad for Northern Ireland in, in, in terms of qualification. No, not at all. And sadly, the 86 World Cup didn't quite go as well. And Spain, mm. Spain had their revenge. Um, but we did end up playing Brazil, which gave rise to um, a really terrible film. Have you seen Shooting for Socrates? Socrates? I haven't. I haven't. Uh, well, I see, uh, the ADC World Cup would have been such a better tournament to make a film of for obvious reasons. Yeah. But uh, there was a Northern Irish film from about six or seven years ago about the Northern Irish campaign uh, in Mexico. Um, and it's really bad. And the kind of thing that really annoys me is making Socrates the Brazilian captain because he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, you see. <laughs> What a note to finish on, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Marvellous stuff. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this game. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, For more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk, everybody. But Jonathan and myself will be back next week with another great game from football. See you then.